Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining me tonight here on Golf Talk Live. Um, Really looking forward to tonight's uh, discussion. We're going to, as I said in a moment here, we're going to start off with the Coach's Corner panel, and then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined uh, by a couple of uh, great gentlemen, actually from the NY Sports Science Lab up in New York. Um, Dr. Rushi uh, Shalawala and Paul Searles are going to be joining me a little bit later on the broadcast. Um, just to remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the BlogTalkRadio.com network, and at the end of the uh, broadcast night, as uh, you probably have noticed if you've been tuning in this year again, uh, I've got some uh, out credits, if you will, uh, and uh, it will give you some other great ways uh, in addition to this network that you can tune into the broadcast. So make sure you stick around to the end of the broadcast for that. All right, I've got a, a, a quick uh, announcement to make. Uh, again, this season, uh, Coach's Corner is going to be sponsored by GolfSwing.com. And I'm just going to read out something very quickly, and then we'll introduce the uh, panel tonight and then get into our discussion for the evening. Uh, Golfswing.com, again, is sponsoring the Coach's Corner panel segment again this season here on Golf Talk Live. Uh, Golfswing.com, with its cutting-edge technology, have teamed up alongside some of the best uh, golf instructors, coaches, and swing gurus in the business. Uh, Together, they have created one of the best video teaching and training online platforms in golf. So if you're ready to break 100, 90, 80, or even 70, then join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. Um, and a little bit later on in the broadcast, I'll play a, slor- a short clip that you can get a little bit more information as to where to go and, and how to join their, uh, their uh, great online video academy. But uh, let's get uh, the Coach's Corner panel ready here to go. Let me just introduce uh, the gang, and uh, we'll get into tonight's uh, discussion. Uh, first up, of course, uh, back again this season is Clint Wright. He's a 30-year member of the PGA, uh, also a partner at TGM Golf, and a big proponent of the R3 approach. And in my opinion, one of the best uh, covering the short game today. Plus, he's uh, among one of my favorite uh, guests and panelists here on the Coach's Corner. Uh, Also joining tonight is uh, another good friend, Chuck Evans. Uh, He's the owner of Chuck Evans Golf. He's also a Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher and a Golf Digest Top Teacher in America. Uh, Also a Top 50 Growth of the Game teacher. And he's the Director of Instruction at Apache Creek Golf Club in Apache Junction in Arizona. Uh, rounding up the panel, of course, coming back is Dr. Allison Kurt. Uh, she is a PGA, LPGA master professional, one of two women uh, ever to achieve the highest uh, designation earned by an instructor. Uh, Dr. Kurt has over 30 years of golf competition background, has recently played in five LPGA Tour majors and qualified for her sixth uh, to be held in June of this season. Uh, we'll tell a little bit about that a little bit later on in the broadcast. Uh, she's also the owner of Allison Kurt Golf out in Los Angeles, California. And she's earned countless teaching awards, such as the 2018 uh, Southern California PGA Club Fitter of the Year, four-time LPGA Western Section Teacher of the Year, and the 2016 Southern uh, California PGA Teacher of the Year, just to name a few. Uh, Dr. Kurt is a clinical uh, sport uh, psychotherapist utilizing EMDR 
to help athletes. It serves at the LP, as the LPJ Teaching and Club Professional National Vice President. So, guys, welcome to Coach's Corner Panel. Glad to be here. Thank you. Excited All right, to be I pre- here. I appreciate it. Um, okay, I'm going to, as I was mentioning to you guys off air, we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that are, are changing uh, in the golf industry. And uh, last season, I talked a little bit about some of the stats uh, of, of golfers coming in and, and uh, sort of the, the uh, dynamics, if you will, of, of what area, what age groups and things like that, based on some, some studies that uh, I observed. And, uh, but I want to talk about more from uh, a different aspect of the industry. So I'm going to read uh, just a little bit. Um, and Clint, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you uh, first. But uh, I want to read a little bit from an article that I came across recently uh, that was uh, featured in Golf Week magazine, uh, on, their online version. And I'm going to read a little bit, and then I've got uh, some questions for, for each of you. Um, so the article sort of starts off, Pitcher and Upside Down Funnel. Uh, says Club Corp CEO David Pillsbury. Uh, and of course, he's speaking metaphorically. At the top of the funnel, the narrowest part are avid golfers, the backbone, of course, of the private club business. At the bottom, the widest part are social members who may or may not have ever played golf. So the avid golfers always have been the most coveted uh, customers because they play the most golf and spend the most money. Um, but here's the rub, as he puts it, their numbers are dwindling. Uh, you've got all the same clubs chasing a shrinking audience. Uh, which is not a good formula, of course. Uh, there aren't enough people to support the narrow end of the funnel. Um, I'm going to read a little bit more later on, but Clint, I want to ask you something. Based on, on what he's saying here, and, and, and we'll support it a little bit later on, as I said, with some of the, the other discussion, but mm-hmm. there's obviously been a decline. You know this as well, being out in the Carolinas. You've seen a lot of club co- uh, closures. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I guess my question is, is it time, do you think, for the traditional golf club, and it doesn't necessarily have to be private, it could be semi-private or it could be public, are they going to have to start changing their business model? And if so, what do you recommend some of the changes be? Well, they're already changing. Um, and to, to clarify a couple of things, there's no such thing as semi-private. It doesn't exist. Right. It's, you're either private or public. I mean, we could just as easily call it semi-public. Okay, right. so there, that that's a that was an old term that came out of a fact when some of the the private clubs were beginning to look for money, they they didn't right. want to give that private time, so they would say, well, we're semi-private, we're private four days a week, and then we allow outside play three days a week. Well, then that morphed into seven days a week. If you had money, you could come play. And right. so what we're seeing, you know, I I've got back in the club management for a while because uh, a friend. It was having some difficulty with the course, and we have definitely changed our business model to, from a um, okay, um, you know, the old style golf shop, snack bar, restaurant. We now have an activity center. So behind the behind the counter where we sell golf balls, golf clubs, stuff, we also have beer taps and hot dog. You know, so it's an activity area where. The younger golfers coming in, and it's a center, uh, like I said, a center of activity. Everything happens here. So they're, they're not having to go hunt the place to sit and have a beer after they, they play. It's all right there together. And, you know, we're really um, 
what we saw here was a club that was historically public, tried to go private, it didn't work very well, and we're back public again. And so from our viewpoint, as far as a business plan, we're not really focused on growing a membership. Right. Um, because you see, the, the younger the younger generation, the, the 40 and under, they never remember a time where there wasn't good public golf. Now, I remember when, you know, that the only good golf was at the private club, but it's not that way anymore. So there, there's no built-in concept of needing to join to play the best club in town. They've come through a time frame in learning to play where they played multiple golf courses in the marketplace, so they don't want to be tied down to a factor of i gotta, I got to spend X amount of money at this particular place for the next 30 days or I'll lose it. So what we've done is that we've instituted plans that we, we're seeing all over the country. I think we call it a player's card. Mm-hmm. So they can pre-buy X number of rounds that gives them membership value but ultimate flexibility. They can use it anytime they want to. Uh, so I, I think he's absolutely correct. You understand that the universe of people that he's talking about, both there's nobody – joining that universe of golfers and unfortunately right. reaching an age where many of them are not here anymore that that generation is without being overly morbid they're 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 just not playing golf any longer they've aged out right. and the right. replacement golfer does not see the value in what they're what we need them to replace if we want to stay traditional and private clubs. So we've changed and shifted our focus towards activity. So we want to try to create activities that are going to attract the mass public, where years ago when I was in a private club business, we created activities for the small membership universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So instead of having member guests, we're having two-man captain choices. You don't need to be a member to play. We don't even have a member guest at our club anymore because right, we don't right. want to limit it to the small universe of members. We want to reach out to everybody. And so I, I think he's absolutely correct. I think from our standpoint, we understand that the future of our game is in public golf, in the masses anyway. I think there's always going to be a place for the private club, but generally what's going to keep our business and game going is public golf, and we'll drive public golf through activity not necessarily membership. Yeah, that's some great points, you know, Clinton, and, and you're exactly right. Um, Allison, I want to go to you uh, on, on this here and sort of along this same theme, but I just want to add something else. I want to read a little bit more here and then get your thoughts uh, from a slightly different perspective. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, again, off air uh, in, in our comment, uh, the PJ West in La Quinta, California, has been billed as uh, the western home of golf in America, uh, but even even in recent years, they've even uh, some of their staff uh, have seen members switching from full golf memberships uh, down to more of a sports membership uh, with still some playing privileges. So what they're starting to see now, and, and what's interesting about this, and I'm not going to read the whole uh, portion of the article, but what's interesting about this, um, their PGA, their director of marketing and membership sales, the main reason they're losing their golf members wasn't because of health or fitness. It was because of grandkids. So it's a generational uh, shift, if you will. What are you starting to see happen in, in your line of sight, if you will, um, you know, in, in your area 
uh, of, of both teaching and, uh, you know, being involved with, with some of the courses out in California, uh, particularly in, in L.A., what are you starting to see happening there? Do you concur with a lot of what Clint has said uh, and also what, uh, what I've just read here is that you're seeing a sh shift in how people are approaching uh, golf uh, uh, clubs, if you will, or golf courses. They're looking for more um, things to do than just going out there and, and uh, playing a round of golf. What are your thoughts on, on some of the changes? It definitely has evolved over the year, and, and I have an interesting take on this because I grew up in um, country club life, if you will, where I had access to swimming and tennis and junior golf, and it was a very family-oriented activity. And what I'm seeing out, particularly in L.A., is just because of the cost of land, those big facilities are sort of the cream of the crop where it's the higher SES families that are members at mm -hmm. those sort of facilities, but it's the golf club where there's a lot of activity, where it's just a golf course and a practice facility. Um, and so the golf members that are coming out are looking for, I think with their time constraints, shorter bits of time that they're allowed to participate and maximize their family potential. But out here, junior golf is roaring. We've got great, junior programs, junior leagues, and there's a lot of kids that are at the golf courses. But to the other point, I feel that there's also kind of a switch in the lifestyle where a little bit of mm -hmm. the culture has changed and it's a bit more lax. So it's not as, I guess, that old paradigm of being like a stingy, suck-up country club, uh, dress codes right. are relaxed, the, the types of games that are being played on the golf course are relaxed, Oftentimes there might be a foot golf that comes in on Friday evenings and the golf course is now transformed into a, a soccer type field. And even the modes of transportation are changing where golf carts are now turning into surfboards and people are having fun in a different way on the golf course. And it's really attacking all generations. However, I think that that's not appealing to some of the more traditionalists. And some of mm -hmm. those individuals are sticking to um, the old paradigm of a country club lifestyle. Um, I do think that the members that are downgrading their membership from full golf, they're looking to do activities with their family and yeah. making golf fun. And that may be only playing a couple of holes, but making it glow ball rather than golf on a Sunday afternoon or playing foot golf uh, and riding a surfboard, which is also your golf cart. So California is kind of doing it a little bit uh, different way than the East coast, but it's certainly attracting families, younger people to the game um, and including multi-span generations. Yeah, you're exactly right. <clears throat> Pardon me. I think Chuck, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen, in in golf and and it doesn't matter really whether it's east or, or west coast you're, you're seeing a a sort of changing of the guard uh, i guess for lack of better words you're seeing just as as um allison had just sort of mentioned you know you, the traditional golfer uh there's certainly you know still those opportunities to to have that traditional feel but as the family units now are are gathering and looking for things to do as a family unit, that sort of traditional model uh, doesn't necessarily fit uh, every family's lifestyle. And uh, I want to read something very quickly, and then I want to get your thoughts uh, as well. 
Um, now the sports complex gives uh, a place where families uh, can congregate. Uh, there are two natural areas that traditionally have been uh, gathering on the golf course, and that's the bar and the range. Uh, more formal dining rooms are trending down with most clubhouse renovations centering on better bar experience. So people want more TVs, more bars, more casual, uh, more views, more indoor-outdoor seating. Uh, so they want that, that, you know, what typically hasn't been uh, your traditional country club feeling. It's more of, um, you know, there's other activities, as, as Allison and Clint talked about, there's other things going on other than just golf. Is this a trend um, or is this really a, a new way that golf clubs are going to have to, to sort of morph into regardless of where they are if they want to stay competitive and if they want to stay open? Um, Chuck, and that's for you. Well, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it's a trend. I think it's, uh, it's the way it's going to have to go because, because golf uh, for so long has been labeled as an elitist sport, and it doesn't matter if you're right. playing golf at the local cow pasture or, you know, at a club that costs you half a million dollars a year. Uh, it's still labeled as a elitist sport. Um, you see a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the I'm going to say from the 35 to 50 age group, at least where, where I've been uh, in the last few years, are the ones that are that have stopped coming out. And it's a 55 and older coming out and the juniors. So, you know, when juniors come out, they want to have fun. I mean, uh, you, you know, somebody was talking the other day about, well, what do you do with junior golfers? Do you put the hammer down and make them work hard on their games when they're just starting out, or do you let them have fun? And I and I think there's, I think it can work both ways depending on on that player. But by and large, if you make it fun for the kids, they'll want to come back. If you do the drill mm-hmm. sergeant thing on them, then they don't want to come back. Okay. Yeah. So, but I know I know that there are there are a lot of clubs that are trying to integrate uh, more of the social activity, uh, especially with non-members bringing people bringing people in from the outside, um, because they want to have a, a bigger group to mingle with because they're tired of seeing the same old people all the time. So so they're right. opening their doors right. and let some fresh blood come in. You know. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That's a, a great way to put it. Um, and, and it goes back to really what um, the CEO of Club Corp said, as I mentioned earlier on. Um, you know, the the pool of avid golfers, if you will, is, is definitely dwindling. And now you're seeing, uh, you know, more of a, uh, an entry level or social membership um, or even a sports membership um, and obviously they want to eventually uh, convert that into a more lucrative golf membership. But I think in order to stay competitive and I think also to stay current and relative, you know, as Allison, as you had mentioned, um, you know, they're going to have to offer more activities. I mean, yes, it's a golf course, um, but not everybody plays golf. And that's something that I think that um, the facilities are going to have to recognize, that they need to have other activities. One of the other things that they're really you're seeing now, and obviously it's starting with some of the larger clubs first, but you're seeing them. Uh, one of the the things that uh, that uh, uh, David Pilbury, the the CEO of Club Corp, talked about uh, a little bit later on in the article was the fact that getting into more fitness, because uh, a lot of people that may belong to a a uh, golf course uh, or golf club also have a gym membership somewhere else, and they're trying to get those people 
uh, instead of going somewhere else to work out, uh, coming to the golf course and, and working out. So a lot of them are expanding and adding a fitness facility within the, the complex in order to have sort of a one-stop shop. So Clint, what do you, do you see that happening um, in, in your neck of the woods as well? Are you starting to notice that? Not necessarily at the, the club that you're with, but are you starting to see that trend happening as well? Yeah, uh, just an example. I had a, a gentleman come over um, and started to discuss in a club that's in a nearby by town, and he was asking about, you know, about memberships and things of nature. He was on their golf committee, and he said, look, they had just, you know, went through this major capital expenditure to upgrade their pool and to upgrade their fitness centers, and it just didn't go anywhere. You know, it just right. didn't not accomplish what they wanted to have happen. And I said it was real simple. I mean, the the person that they're trying to attract lives in a neighborhood where mom and the kids can walk to the pool because the amenity they're building in subdivisions now are, uh, are pools. Right. Every, every new subdivision around here has got, got their own homeowner's pool. And they can go to Gold's Gym 24-7 for $10 a month. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's they don't see any value. I, I don't see here. There's obviously there there's there's exceptions to everything I'm about to say, but in their particular case, either they didn't promote it or market it correctly. But the people they were did get it in front of didn't see any value in those amenities. You know, but I, to to back up a little bit, I still think that there's a, a seriously good position for a golf club. And, and that's kind of what, what I see focusing in our area is that, we're, you know, we have a, a, a nine-hole 530 dogfight on Tuesday. Play nine holes, come in and drink beer and eat wings. And that's what the younger – and we see a much younger person coming to do that than we see playing on a regular that, – that's what they want to do. It's a social it, – it's really not the golf. They come after work, they socialize, and, oh, we're going to have a nine-hole golf game breakout. You know, it's it's kind of similar to going to a hockey game. You know, you go to see the fights, and then the hockey game breaks out. Um, so they they come to socialize and then play a little golf if if it if it's part of the activity. Uh, and there's no question that, that golf – in those areas is probably a 50% portion of the reason they're there. The the socialization and, and the winding down after a long day at work is probably the other half of it. So it works very well together for the younger the younger group of people that come play that play the courses where we're at here. Now, we also have a, a very strong university presence here. So, right. you know, the college kids are playing in the afternoon, things of that nature, but but you know, I I don't know. I think it's a particularly for a club that's in the mid-range type um, golf courses and golf clubs. I mean, in order to to upgrade their facilities of that nature, that is a huge capital expenditure and a huge risk on their part. Um, you know, I'm kind of old school. I, I I think that you have to protect your asset, and that's the golf course, the clubhouse, the activities there. So maybe I'm stuck in old school, but I want to have the best golf course in town. And right. I, and, then, right. and then my activity around that. And I, I just don't see where it makes – maybe it's in certain areas it does – where it makes much sense to pull money out of a capital expenditure category to do that than versus maybe improve your golf course. 
And, and I think it also comes down to the ownership of your facility. You know, um, you know, if the if the corporate ownership thinks that's a wise spending of their capital money, then then great. Uh, you know, like in my case, I have two owners, right. and you know they they it, that capital expenditure comes out of their pocket. So I have to then justify how I'm going to get their money back. Plus, it adds to the revenue stream. And and here, I think that's a pretty tough, uh, pretty tough case to make. But possibly in other areas, it may be not quite as hard to make. But here, it's it's pretty tough. So we focus on the best golf course we can have, utilizing that asset to create activity around it, and try to. And we're shifting into more of an activity. Obviously, this more you know, conducive to the younger golfer and, you know, the, the 25 to 35. And and that means you got to have Blue Moon, not Budweiser. Right. You know, that's you just have to make your changes um, in order to, to make sure that they have the proper socialization to go along with your golf club. Yeah, you have you obviously have to play to your market. And, and again, as sure. you mentioned, you've got a, a big university crowd there. So obviously you've got a big pool to, to pull from. Um, Allison, I want to throw this question to you. Um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about some of the changes the facility has made, but what about the golf professional in general? Um, you know, are we also moving away from traditional lessons? That doesn't mean that we don't offer them, but are we changing that formula as well and offering other products, uh, if you will, in, in the repertoire of the golf professional? Wow, that's a good one. I think that <laughs> as PGA and LPGA professionals, we're kind of still doing the same thing. I can really only mm-hmm. speak for instruction, and I am seeing some coaches evolve their programming to include right. the lifestyles that are attracting, uh, becoming prevalent at the golf course. So coaching programs, um, less one-on-one lessons, more drop-ins, less registration, casual after work type feel i think golf professionals that are at the club environment are probably engaging in different type of activities events than they are used to so instead of just putting Mm -hmm. together a tournament and scorecards they're maybe having to bundle other activities um, with couples events or member guests besides just the typical horse race and have some food and beverage I think it's really taxing golf professionals to be more creative as their companies are trying to accommodate the populations that they're serving. The golf professional either needs to be flexible and move with it, or they might be irrelevant at their club. Um, Some of the areas in Los Angeles are still very traditional and, and those jobs often come up where you have your traditional golf professional role, but some of the golf clubs or some of the facilities where you can take lessons such as urban golf Academy and the indoor simulation facilities, they're not looking Mm -hmm. for a traditional golf professional. They're looking for a hip person who's educated in the game of golf, who can attract a particular clientele and be more like in the hospitality type aspects than just teaching lessons or just being in, in the golf pro world. One of the cool things that's happening in L.A. is our, our plans to bring in a top golf. And we know that across the country, anywhere that a top golf goes up, it's been pretty successful. And with Los Angeles getting one, 
I think it might change the, the vibe of what golf is and how it can be fun and it can be cool. Um, and the pros that are hired at golf, at top golf are being asked to get out of their traditional golf professional role um, because they're serving right. a different type of population. Yeah, and that, that's really an excellent point. And, and Chuck, I want to add something to, to your um, comments here. And I want to ask a, a specific question for you about golf communities in general. But I just want to add something real quick, Allison, about that. You're exactly right with, with organizations like Top Golf. Of course, we're getting away from what we all perceive as traditional golf. It's more of a, uh, a social atmosphere and it's a more relaxed, um, you know, go out, have fun, have a great social gathering with friends. And we'll throw a little golf, you know, in the mix as well. Um, and, and obviously, they're hoping at some point down the road that people will uh, take an interest that maybe traditionally didn't take an interest in the game. Uh, but they're obviously realistic in, to know that the fact that they're not necessarily going to convert every one of those uh, individuals that, that frequent a, a top golf into golfers out in the golf course. Certainly, some are going to do that, and the numbers show that there are that. But it's again a small percentage. So I guess really what the industry is doing, this is my point of, of tonight's discussion, is having to make changes to what we perceive the traditional uh, golf business model, if you will. And Chuck, this brings me to a question I want to ask you about um, sort of these golf communities. We see them all through uh, Florida. We see them through uh, you know Arizona and that as well, and, and literally all around the country. Um, is that model going to have to change? We saw a lot of them close down. Uh, and, and I want to just preface this a little bit because I, I want to be specific. One of the things, uh, and I had some guests on a few weeks back that are actually trying to help some of these uh, communities stay open because what's ultimately happened is they're getting individuals um, that are, are not utilizing the facility and the golf courses just can't support it. Um, but my concern is, or my question with respect to the golfing communities, and I'm talking about, you know, again, like some of the ones you see in southern Florida and that, where, you know, up pops a golf course and everybody's, you know, lining the fairways, their homes. The problem that I see with that model in today's market is because there are less and less people playing golf, it relies on the community to, to prop that course up. So if you've got less people, um, you know, playing golf in those communities, um even though the homeowner is on the hook a little bit, if you will, for lack of better words, is that going to deter people, do you think, from moving into a community like that if they're not interested in golf because they know that they're going to be somehow paying to support that, that golf course? Um, what are your thoughts on that, and does that model have to change as well? Well, I think it does, and, and I, I know several golf course communities where only 25% of uh, of the homeowners or people that live there actually play golf. The rest of them buy there because normally it's peace and quiet on a golf course. So, you know, they're they're doing one or two things. They're buying it for the peace and quiet or they're buying it because they actually play golf. In many cases, it's not because they actually play golf. But the the hard part is if we want to if we want to bring the game more to the to the younger folk, the the difficulty is with the players that are already out and the ownership that's already out. I mean, I'd love it if we had speakers out here on on, on you know on the driving range and, and we had a bev card out there. 
but that's never going to happen, you know, because you've got two entities, the, the players, and then you've got the ownership. And, and it's not time yet. For, I mean, it is time, but it's not time for them yet to see what's in front of them and make those changes. So until they make those changes, we're still looking at the downturn as far as number of rounds and everything else, you know, pro shop sales. I mean, it's memberships, all of it. Yeah, and you're, again, you're exactly right. We're seeing a lot of changes, and I think one of the other things too, uh, Allison, I'm going to come back to you real quick here, and then then Clint. Um, you know, you touched on this with with Top Golf, but in general, we're seeing technology is really starting to drive, and it has been driving the industry, not just obviously in instruction. I mean, that has been uh, paramount in making a lot of changes in in uh, the you know the teaching prof- uh, professionals' repertoire, if you will. But things like Top Golf and Top Tracer technology and and, and other areas um, such as that, uh, golfing lounges, if you will, we're seeing it more and more indoor or concept uh, indoor facilities. That's really starting to drive the market in a different direction as well. Um, do you see there sort of being a a a two or three um, pronged approach, if you will, to golf. In other words, you're still going to have some of your traditional golfers, but now you're going to have a new genre, if you will, I guess is the best way to put it. Do you see sort of new areas of golf expanding foot golf and things like that? And and some of those people may not necessarily ever get into traditional golf. Um, in other words, developing a new product, if you will, uh, for the golfing uh, you know, enthusiast. Do you see that happening? Uh, well, you're seeing it happen, but do you see that that is a direction that the golf industry may end up taking a little bit more, um, uh, you know, uh, to heart, if you will? That's a hard one. I mean, I see it right now as being an attractive activity to get traffic to the golf course and to get a new type of customer to lock them in. But when we look at what's on the media, are we going to be seeing professional foot golf tournaments on TV? Is Golf Channel going to air other forms of of golf or is it going to stay more traditional golf i mean at the end of the day it's a sport and i don't think the sport is going to change but i do think that the facilities have to be flexible and go current with the times and the generation and that may be including technology because as technology is expanding and we know that we can do everything on our phone we all have microcomputers um, yeah. a lot of facilities are now starting to back down a little bit about cell phone usage and, and being allowed to use your cell phone or the technology that's in golf carts. Um, I think the technology is certainly going to help attract people to the game and create this fun sort of cool feel, but I don't know if it's ever going to change like the true heart and spirit of the game of golf. Like that I feel like, or I hope is always going to stay the way it's going to stay. Um, but the activities surrounding it to get more people to be interested or try it out, I would encourage all facilities to look at multiple ways, different approaches, three-pronged approaches to attract golfers. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, if, uh, I can add, if I can add something. Sorry, go ahead, Chuck. So yep. when we go back and we talk about foot golf, then there was Frisbee golf, you know, and, they, and they all started with this big splash. They're not splashing anymore. Okay, there there are a few yeah. isolated places, you know, where they do that, but uh, that's not going to be the growth segment either. You know, I I think that the growth segment, uh, how we can really do this is build nine hole courses, uh, because they can right. get around faster, 
father son can go out and they can play an hour and a half, two hours max, you know. And and they don't have to have any par fours or fives. You can just build par threes and uh, and have different tees. So if you want to make it a par four, you use a big, you know, you use a, the back tee. Um, but I think that's the fastest way I see to grow it is to, is to quit building these ultra hard golf courses because it's all ego driven and build nine hole golf courses that people can have fun and get around and they can enjoy taking their son or daughter out after school and playing nine holes. Hey, Ted. Right. Ted, yep. let me throw something in here, Chuck. In 1983, I bought my first golf course. It's a nine-hole executive-length golf course that's a par 29. I still own it today, and it's the most successful, profitable golf course I've ever owned. Yeah. Exactly what you just got through describing, and for the life of me, longest time, I never figured out why anybody would want to play it. All right, but you're correct. And you got got less maintenance maintenance cost, too. Well, and it's it's father, son, mother, daughter, beginners, all kind of different people that play it. It's quite a diversity. Right. And, right. and to, to come back to something you talked about a minute ago about golf communities and developments, in the very beginning of any of these golf courses that have homes around them, the golf course was never built in the with the essence of it being a business. Right. It never was. The golf course was simply built to drive the price of the real estate around it. So right. it, at the early stages, it was the developer's best interest to keep the golf course up and keep it going. So they just put money in it every year to keep it going. They really didn't care whether it made money or not. It tried to, to minimize the loss, but it really didn't matter if it lost a little bit of money because it was really to drive the price of the real estate from $5 an acre to $50,000 an acre. And what's happening is a lot of these subdivisions that were built around these golf courses or golf courses that were built inside subdivisions, they're maturing now. The developers are long gone. They've sold it off now to the second or third individual that thought it was a business. And we're sitting here wringing our hands trying to figure out how to make a, a business successful that was really never, ever built to be that on its own. Yeah, right? it, it, yeah, okay. It, it, it I think we're near yeah, about as shape as we thing. think we are in our business because the golf courses here that originally were built as businesses are doing quite well. The yep. ones that were built as, as amenity drivers are the ones that are having trouble because you're absolutely right. There's only about, of the homes around the golf course I'm at right now, there's probably maybe 10% of the people that live there play golf. Um. So we, we have to come to recognize the fact that the businesses that we're seeing closing and having difficulty were never really set out to be standalone businesses. And we have to take that into account, obviously, and not kind of kick everything, you know, throw it under the bus to think that, that we're going to be some kind of miracle workers out here and take these golf courses and, and make them profitable. It, it's just it's difficult. Right. Yeah, and and all, and, all of those, and all of those golf course ahead, developments, Chuck. you know, they, the golf course was the attraction, just like Clint said. But they don't, they didn't care about the golf course. They're there to sell home lots and sell homes. Heck yeah. And as soon as they, and as soon as they sell out, they bail. 
You know, they either sell they sell the golf property or they sell the whole thing. You know. And for yeah, some I, reason now, we, the guy professionals and whatever, are supposed to be doing some miracle work to pull these things out of the fire uh, to keep them open. And in a lot of places we are. I mean, you know, but in many cases, I think we're doing ourselves some disservice to, to talk about how many golf courses are closing and think it's some kind of, of effect of the, of, of the golfer in the, in the, uh, our game. It, it very well may be the majority of it is purely bad business decisions made 30 years ago. Yeah, and and if you look last year, I think it was last year, National Golf Foundation, whoever it was, the majority of golf courses, the largest percentage of golf course closures were the golf courses that were $39 and under to play golf. Yes. It's not about the money. It it really isn't about uh, – it is about the money, obviously, but it's – you can – I'll give you a prime example. We we put in a under-40 membership at this club and tried it. I mean, like half price, and it didn't matter. We then gave, we started doing this players club. I've sold more players cards than I've got members because it gave them the flexibility of not in 30 days. It gave them the time they could use it any time. So it wasn't about how much. It was about any dollar amount that locked me into having to spend it for 30, in 30 days had everything to do with a reasonable value of flexibility. Yeah. And that's the direction we're going. But I, I think we do do ourselves as golf professionals and, quote, the, the makers of this game, we do ourselves some disservice in thinking that, that it's all our fault that the golf courses are closing. Right. Right. Well, no, well said. The owner's go, the go ahead, Chuck. Well, and very well, they need not the existing owners, the owners that built it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, Allison, I want to read one more thing here, and then I want to get your, your thoughts. This is something that you alluded to earlier, um, and this was, uh, again, sort of a quote from um, the um, director of sales and marketing at PGA West. Uh, and, and basically, she's stating that culturally, uh, it was getting our club to shift and saying how we can be more uh, – more things to more people. Uh, it was very difficult. Obviously, everybody who works here lives and breathes golf. Um, and to sort of go over our head pro and director of golf and say, yes, we're about golf, but it needs to be quicker. It needs to be more fun. And we need to uh, set up different games. Uh, it, it can't be just competitive. Uh, and that really goes to a point, um, Allison, that you had uh, mentioned earlier is about making it more fun and not just the sort of the traditional golf, uh, not that it can't be fun, but um, I think the market is being driven that they, they want other activities. They want to have other things. Uh, and the, the traditional 18 holes of golf um, might be fun for some, but it might not be for, for somebody else. What do you see happening in, in your neck of the woods in California? Um, what are some of the changes that you're seeing as far as uh, on the golf course itself? Uh, what sort of different uh, challenges? Some of the different changes are certainly affecting length. So having adults and newer golfers in sort of like an Operation 36 type uh, green to tee learning style and playing style. You know, we think about junior tees being out in the middle of the fairway, but there's a lot of newer golfers and less skilled golfers who maybe play once or twice a year that have just as much fun playing a regulation length golf course 
but teeing it up from 100 to 150 yards out and having tournaments and having fun social gatherings um, from those sort of distances. The desert in particular, where this club is located, they are, a lot of those clubs are doing some great things, tag teaming other activities besides just golf. So including a bundle, if you will, like, okay, we're going to go play three holes of golf and then have a pickleball tournament. And pickleball is just the rage. I yeah. A lot of people are joining clubs to be pickleball players and right. then also, you know, play golf in the side. Um, and the, the usage of executive golf courses, par 63s, um, having, having these really nice, luxurious looking golf courses where they're all par threes. And I think length has a, a huge advantage to that. In some of the competitions um, I'm seeing, particularly at my club, the competitions are attracting a certain demographic of membership, you know, the traditionals that like to compete and stroke play, but including more tag team events where you pick a partner, bring a guest, play a different format, score doesn't matter, prizes, drinks. Our pitch and sip group at my particular club, they go out and they play from any tee they feel comfortable with, don't need to keep score, and then they all have glasses that match with their alcohol and they, they join socially afterwards. So the, the clubs out here are definitely thinking outside of the box when it comes to right. moving from like a traditional round of golf to attract different types of people. And I think the quote hits the nail on the head that it's not, not really trying to go over the director of golf or uh, the golf department, but it's saying we need to be relevant. And in order to be relevant, we have right. to think a little bit differently and I'll, I'll leave with this comment that I think is interesting in some of the golf courses are charging by the hole rather than nine hole rounds, 18 hole rounds. They're coming up with a system out here in California of play by the number of, or pay by the number of holes that you play. So you get out there and you play three holes and you're done. You check out, you pay for three. You decide to go play 13 holes and you're done. You pay for 13. And I think that's an interesting right. way to, you know, kind of attract people that you're not locked and loaded for $100 for five hours. But if you want to go out and just play a couple of holes, you pay for three and, and you're, you're good to go and you're satisfied. So those are some of the yeah, and, and that. Yeah, and, and that's, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Allison, because I actually had a guest uh, a couple of years ago, a young gentleman, and name escapes me now, but uh, he actually developed an, an iPhone app. Um, that did that very thing, and he started a, a, sort of a test, if you will, out in the Phoenix, Arizona, er, Phoenix, Arizona area, excuse me, um, with a couple of golf courses. And what he did is he actually went through uh, their books, if you will, and, and had a look at um, how many of their members uh, were actually playing the number of rounds. And one of the big things that came up that he discovered when talking with some of the members and talking with the golf course uh, uh, facility. Uh, heads and so forth, owners, if you will, was that people were not playing um, or very few were playing traditional 18-hole or even 9-hole. Some of them only had time to play four or five holes. So he actually developed an app that did that very thing that you just talked about that you could pay by the hole. So that, uh, in fact, he lived by one of the golf courses. So a lot of times he would just go out there and maybe only play three holes, and his app would allow him to pay for those three holes directly through the app 
uh, and the money goes uh, again into um, you know the till of the golf course right away. So it, it, they they get that instant uh, fund uh, without having to wait, and he didn't even actually have to go into the clubhouse. It's actually built into their system. So um, I can see that being a trend as well. I think it really boils down to this, guys. Then we're going to wrap up. Is I think the industry has room for a little of everything. I think we can certainly have, uh, you know, continue to have our traditional golfers, um, and I think um, there'll be new traditional golfers developed over time. Uh, but I think the industry not only to stay relevant within itself, uh, but to stay relevant within the surrounding communities. There are so many other activities that are, you know, coming out there, and I think if if golf um, sort of stays down one. Uh, constant or consistent path, uh, it, it's going to become very quickly a dinosaur uh, in, in, a, in the sense of, of games or activities. So I think it needs to, to you know, force that change, uh, and I think it'll be good in the long run. And, and Clint, to your point, uh, you're exactly right. It's not the golf professional's job, uh, you know, to bail out a lot of these uh, golfing communities. I think that they have to understand what it is that they've got there uh, and, and quit, you know, trying to sort of resurrect, um, you know, a, a, a dying course um, because that's not really what it was put there for. It's an amenity for the community and, and, uh, and that's essentially what it was. Um, and that's not to say to get rid of it, but they need to have other things as well. Um, great discussion tonight. Um, Allison, I'm going to let you go first. Um, just to let everybody know how they can reach you, but I also want to give you an opportunity. Um, you're going to be playing in one of the majors this year. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm super excited to be playing in my sixth LPGA major and qualified for KPMG PGA Women's Championship, which will be held at Hazeltine National Golf Course up in Minnesota. So I'm excited to make a return appearance to that event, and that's the sixth major in the past seven years for me so playing pretty well and hoping to perform perform my best for this year in 2019 but all the listeners i'd love for them to follow me on instagram i'm always posting some new tips whether it's golf tips or fitness tips or psychology tips so head over to instagram allison kurt golf and look me up also have some youtube content with the same name and certainly follow me on facebook and all of those Social media sites will lead you to my website for contact info, online scheduling, or if you just want to talk golf. Perfect. Well, thank you as always, uh, Allison, and and good luck uh, this summer. Good luck this season, actually, but good luck uh, in June at the KPMG event. I I know you'll do uh, extremely well. I know you've been working hard. I've been been watching you online with some of the different posts that you've done, and I know you're really working hard to uh, and have worked hard to, to get to that level. So, uh, keep it going and, and keep us posting how you do. Um, Chuck, I'm going to let you go next. Uh, how can the folks uh, reach out to you? Oh, they can go to the website, which is chuckevansgolf.com. Uh, phone number and email are on there. And then all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, as Chuck Evans. Uh, so they can they can also go there. They can also go to the Ultimate Guide to Golf, which has over uh, a library of over 200 uh, training videos for golfers for every level of golfer. So, uh, and then if they want to come out to Arizona, come on out. Sun's out. It's not cold. It's a good time. <laughs> you're you're definitely soaking up the uh, the uh, western uh, 
climate. Uh, I, I know when you were out here on the East Coast, uh, we had a little rain last year, and it made you decide to head back out west. And I don't, I don't blame you. Um, but I'm glad you're. Yeah, I know. I'm glad you uh, you're settling in uh, at your new locale. Um, and last but not least, uh, least excuse me, my tongue's tied tonight. Uh, my good friend Clint, how can the folks reach out to you? And any final thoughts? Uh, easy enough, uh, Tez. It's Clint Goff at zero zero one at yahoo dot com, uh, or like I said, if they're here in the the local uh, Northwest South Carolina area, just look me up uh, and uh, come by to see us. Would have have lunch and and have a conversation about golf, huh? Sounds good. Well, guys, thank you very much. Uh, great discussion tonight. And, and like I said, I found the article very interesting. There were a lot of uh, – obviously, there were some other things that I, I, we didn't have time to get into. But, you know, it, it's interesting to see that what a lot of the um, – not just the teacher professionals obviously observe, but a lot of the other uh, industry leaders in golf are starting to recognize and see that um, some changes are going to have to be made, and and I think that there's been a lot of emphasis on on why people have, have sort of gotten out. And you know, uh, Chuck, you had mentioned uh, a moment ago about um, you know that sort of a, a, a certain area or age group from uh, early 30s to upwards of of uh, top 50s that are sort of getting out of the game or have gotten out of the game, and and that's uh, obviously a discussion for another evening. But uh, um, great topic tonight, great discussion, guys, and I appreciate always uh, your input into the Coach's Corner panel, and I look forward to having you guys all back again next time. Look forward to it, guys. Y'all have a nice evening. All right, thanks, thanks, guys. Thanks, Ted. You're welcome. All right, good night. All right, that was uh, Clint Wright, Chuck Evans, and Dr. Allison Kurt. Uh, on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. Uh, thanks uh, to all of them for uh, some great discussion. And uh, here in just a moment, I'm going to be joined by uh, tonight's uh, very special guest. But in the meantime, uh, again, uh, GolfSwing.com is our uh, sponsor of the Coach's Corner panel. And here's just a little message on how to uh, get involved with them. Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? GolfSwing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, GolfSwing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, GolfSwing.com's staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at GolfSwing.com. All right. Don't forget, after the show, um, visit uh, golfswing.com. Check out their great online video academy. Uh, Very, very easy to join uh, and very, very inexpensive. And uh, there are literally thousands of great video tips on there by some of the best golf instructors in the business. Uh, Very, very professionally done. In fact, we've uh, had a few of them here on uh, the Golf Talk Live. Uh, one particularly, John Decker, of course, many of you are familiar, uh, has been a regular on the uh, Coach's Corner panel for the last few years. Uh, he has literally done, uh, I think, almost 200 uh, videos now uh, on uh, golfswing.com. So make sure you check them out. And don't forget to tune in on Tuesday mornings uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network and join uh, LPGA professional Legends Tour player Cindy Miller and I uh, on the Women of Golf show uh, airs Tuesday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on the Blog Talk Radio 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com uh, network. Uh, we've always got some great uh, winners. We're going to be featuring uh, a winner uh, from the IOA Championship uh, on the Symmetra Tour coming up this uh, Tuesday. We don't know who it's going to be yet, obviously. Uh, that uh, tournament's uh, beginning, uh, I think, today or tomorrow. And uh, we'll be playing through the weekend, so we'll get an idea uh, as the weekend progresses who that is going to be. But we'll uh, have that uh, individual on and then another uh, great guest to follow. So make sure you check that out on Tuesday mornings as well. Um, and as I mentioned, at the end of uh, the broadcast tonight after um, my guest interview, uh, you can hear some great uh, additional ways that you can tune into the broadcast, some other uh, online social media platforms that feature the shows, uh, not only Golf Talk Live, but also the Women of Golf uh, can also be found at those uh, other uh, social media platforms as well. So you can always check them out and uh, you can subscribe for free. There's no cost. So just go to whichever one uh, that you choose to, whether it be CastBox, Spotify, or iTunes, and just uh, either follow or subscribe, depending on what they ask. And again, it's free, and you can uh, get the latest and, and uh, updated uh, uh, shows each and every week for both of them, so make sure you do that. And uh, you can also follow me on all uh, various forms of social media, uh, Facebook, uh, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, of course, and uh, all of that will be uh, in the following uh the interview uh, portion as well. Um, all right, I'm going to be joined here in just a moment or two. I'm going to actually read out a little bit about uh, both of them here. I actually had a group uh, a couple of years back from the NY Sports Science Lab. Uh, one of them is coming back, uh, but I had, uh, I think, three or four of them on that night. Uh, Dr. Roshi uh, Shalawala uh, is going to be joining me here, as well as Paul Searles. I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of them, and uh, when they're here, uh, then we'll just jump right into tonight's discussion. Uh, Dr. Rashi Shalawala, of course, is the Director of Sports uh, Science Lab, and uh, Rashi brings extensive experience in working with athletes of all ages and levels, including professional and amateur athletes. Uh, he's a clinical instructor for uh, Columbia University and is affiliated uh, with the Hospital for Special Surgeries and as a hip uh, clinician. And... Uh, Paul Searles is, uh, as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, brings a wide range of experience to the sports science lab. Uh, Paul brings multiple perspectives to the lab as he was an athlete uh, uh, his life, uh, for his entire life, uh, played uh, college baseball uh, for the College of New Jersey and has worked with elite athletes across the East Coast. So both of them are very uh, specialized in their areas and uh, the North uh, and a New York, excuse me, sports science lab is going to be, or has been partnering with a Zone Sports Academy. We're going to talk a little bit about that, and then also uh, how the uh, pro athletes, if you will, and uh, can benefit uh, in a lot of different sports, but particularly uh, golf at the NY Sports Science Lab. So we're going to talk to both of them. Uh, once they come on board. Um, again, don't forget to tune in every uh, Thursday evening here on Golf Talk Live from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. And I'm glad for those of you that are tuning in live tonight. Um, after the end of the show, of course, uh, all of the programs are auto-recorded, uh, so you can certainly go in and listen to uh, the show in its entirety. If you missed part of it, uh, you can go back uh, to uh, this particular network, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive, or as I mentioned at the end of the show, uh, in the closing credits, you will hear some other great ways, some other social media platforms that you can tune in and listen to as well. So um, lots of great uh, great shows. Uh, if you haven't uh, followed very long, I appreciate it. Welcome to the family, if you will. 
Uh, always have some great guys on here. And uh, <clears throat> again, for some of you that are a little bit newer to the show, uh, the Coach's Corner panel, which uh, just uh, aired or just ended a few moments ago, uh, is something I started about five years uh, back. Uh, the show has actually been broadcasting now. This is my seventh season here in Golf Talk Live. And about uh, into the second season, uh, towards the end of the second season, I believe, uh, I started the Coach's Corner panel. And really what it was was to invite some other like-minded uh, individuals in the golf industry, um, various different stages and levels of, of degree uh, of instruction and coaching, uh, really to get together and talk about different uh, things, uh, not only how to help your game, but also things going on in the industry like we did tonight, uh, talking about some of the changes that are going on, both good and bad. And uh, it's been very, very successful. It's been uh, very um, well received by a lot of the listeners out there. So uh, I've kept it going now. And as I said, uh, that component has been uh, I think it, that part is about five, uh, season five, uh, fifth season, and uh, overall Golf Talk Live has been on for seven, uh, going on its seventh season now. So uh, done very, very well. I'm very, very um, happy to have all of you tuning in each and every week, and I appreciate it um, uh, tremendously. Um, as I mentioned, I'm just waiting for uh, Dr. Rushi and uh, Paul to uh, um, come on the show here, and we'll uh, just uh, hold tight for a minute. Uh, as we wait for them to come on board. Um, <clears throat> some other things, too, uh, that uh, as the season progresses, I'm going to be tackling uh, some other topics as well, as uh, obviously they're very, very important to, to golf. Um, some changes going on, some new developments that are happening as they come. Uh, I'm going to be updating that a little bit more. Uh, I see I've, I've got one of them here. I don't know if it's uh, both of them, but uh, let me see who I've got here. They may be coming on together. All right, good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. How's it going? Hi, this is Rushi uh, from Sports Science Lab. And this is Paul. You're Paul Hi. as well. Okay, both on the same line. Okay, I wasn't sure. I thought they said that you might be calling in separate. Yeah, well, well uh, the Rushi. <laughs> that's okay. Well, Rushi and, uh, and Paul, welcome very uh, much to uh, Golf Talk Live. Thank you for joining me this evening. I've already. Uh, let the audience know a little bit about each of you. So I've already done that intro part uh, before you came on. And uh, so we'll get right into our uh, our discussion tonight, okay? Absolutely. All right. Um, Rushi, I know... Yeah, Rushi, I know that you've been on. Uh, you were on the last time. Uh, Paul, I don't think you were on uh, uh, before um, when I had uh, actually a, a group of them on from NY Sports uh, Science Lab. So... Uh, for that benefit, what I want to do first, guys, I know you've got some very exciting news to, to talk about tonight, and we're going to get to that here in a little bit, but I want to kind of go back a little bit and just talk about, um, obviously, this is a, a golf program, and I know that you guys are involved with a lot of different athletes from literally a, a wide spectrum of sports, but I want to focus, obviously, on, on golf particularly because, uh, again, this is a golf show. Um, talk about, if you can, uh, some of uh, Rushi, I'm going to start with you, and then, Paul, I want you to jump in as well. Um, some of the, the different services, if you will. What is SSL? I'm going to use SSL uh, instead of reading out the full name every time just to, to keep it simple. What does SSL offer the competitive golfer? Okay, the whole uh, the program we are running, it's a sports science lab. So basically our whole methodology involves uh, – uh, it's kind of uh, run in the four part. We analyze, uh, we apply, we optimize, and repeat. So what does that mean? Is 
we any athlete walks into our door, first we do is we do really thorough assessment on them uh, to find out what is their exactly uh, biomechanical faults, what they are missing. Is there any length, length tension issue? Is it some weakness issue? Is it some lack of uh, joint awareness or proprioception or any problem with division and eye coordination and all that? Um, on Depending on what we find on the assessment, uh, we give them a proper program, uh, which could include the training with the personal trainer, athletic trainer, strength conditioning coach, as well as the chiropractor, physical therapy, if they need any rehab. Uh, we train them, and then we repeat, and then we check them again to see what improvement we have seen it on base of the first assessment to the last assessment. So it's kind of in a nutshell. Uh, we try to find any kind of human deficit possible. It could be a micro or macro level, and right. whatever we can do to fix this, we try to help them the best way we can, and if not, then we suggest them the right thing to do or right professional to go to to get that fixed. But the good thing about it is we have the rehab component. So in case if somebody is hurting, then we take care of that too. Plus we have good recovery program. Um, so that comes handy and we have excellent stuff which helps to drive the whole process of, uh, of our program. So uh, just to say that uh, when it comes to the golfer, same thing applies. So when the golfer walks into our place, uh, uh, what we do is we do a very detailed assessment, which includes the checking their uh, water content in the body, their muscle mass, uh, their posture, their golf swing analysis, uh, which uh, will break down in the patterns. So if you have time, I'll go through all the detail in there. Uh, we check their length tension because any kind of tightness in the, suppose the back of the leg hamstring muscle or lower back muscle that will affect your golf swing. Uh, we check how their body is moving, how their weight bearing changing from front foot to the back foot. We chain the ground reaction force with them. We, uh, and because golf is a game of stability and the coordination, that's one thing we emphasize more on. So we check how stable their spine is uh, and compared to the legs and the feet and all that. So we assess them in the regular form as well as during the golf swing as well. Um, and we check the hand-eye coordination to see how quickly they are reacting to stimuli and what is it, their perception so they know how far to hit and all that. And uh, also we analyze their strength and the endurance of it too. And because of golf, it looks easy game, but uh, the research shows that in a, in a way, it's more dangerous than rugby, hockey, and other team sports because the rate of right. injury in golfing is 1.8 per thousand person uh, versus 1.5 thousand person in the other like rugby and hockey games. So it looks pretty easy game, but the injury rate <laughs> is pretty high. So uh, yeah, so and once we do all the analysis, we write the detailed report. Uh, to guide them what exactly they're missing. Is it a bad posture? Is there, they're not stable? Again, we don't go into too much detail about their bottom, uh in the golf swing, so we leave that to the pro. I say, all right, I'm not going to change your technique or anything. I'll just tell you what your faults are. And uh, we, what we do is we usually talk to the pro uh, golf or, or their 
uh, coach or whoever they are, and we tell them that this is what our findings are, and that might put them at higher risk of injury, or maybe that's the reason they are not getting where they they need to go. So technique is their part. What we do is we do the biomechanical part of it, um, and then train them. So training is a very important part of our methodology as well. Uh, if we find something, we make sure we get the flexibility back, their endurance back, their hand-eye coordination, their reaction time, and all that. Uh, yeah, and, and case, I want to... Uh, again, the golf injury is pretty high. So, I mean, the injury rate is pretty high. So, we also treat them uh, by using the other modalities, manual therapy techniques, chiropractor, physical therapy, whatever we need to. Right. Let me ask you, um, uh, Paul, before I bring you on to, to talk a little bit about what, what it is that you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if I understand, Rushi, what you're what you're saying is, is you're you're not there to diagnose or to retrain the golfer uh, in their technique with their golf swing. What you're there to do is to, through your assessment program, if you will, is to isolate some of the potential problems that they may be having currently or could potentially have down the road if they don't, um, you know, change certain factors in their day-to-day life, if you will, whether it could be some things as simple as nutrition, uh, it could be uh, proper physical exercise and so forth, uh, or um, maybe they haven't properly addressed a past injury and that injury is affecting them from, um, you know, getting their best uh, golf game. So really what you're doing is you're finding out through your analysis, if you will, some of the key areas that potentially could be giving them difficulties out in the golf course and then helping them by relaying that information to whatever teaching professional or coach that they may be working with, as you said, uh, to let them then say, okay, this is maybe why, you know, Mr. Smith is not uh, able to do this or um, could also help the coach or professional, teach professional um, say, okay, we can't do this because, again, Mr. Smith has got some areas over here that could potentially uh, cause problems down uh, down the road. So we need to modify his teaching uh, or coaching uh, sessions a little bit differently. Is, is that pretty much, uh, did I get it right? Absolutely. It's a nutshell. This is what exactly we do. Very good. I'm glad I was listening. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Paul, I want to bring you in. Yeah, I want to bring you in, and, and then Rushi, I'm going to come back to you in a, in a minute. But uh, Paul, I want Absolutely. to get you in because because obviously, yeah, you're a strength and conditioning coach. So now that mm-hmm. we've isolated, uh, you know, Dr. Rushi has has isolated some of the key areas. In that uh, and if I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I want you to sort of lay out, if you will, a little bit about what your function at NY uh, Sports Science Lab is. What specifically do you do, and when do you sort of fit in the the what piece of the puzzle do you fit into in your uh, position? Yeah, absolutely. So when an athlete comes to us, that whole assessment process that we go through is a combination of the athlete working with one of our PTs like Rushi and then also going with, you know, one of our, you know, performance experts like myself. So that whole um, assessment process is a combination of, it would be like Rushi and then me finishing it. Um, so I'm, you know, we're all involved in that assessment process. So we know that when we get all those results, we've had eyes on as well. So it's not just listening to someone else's word. It's okay. We have all these results. I saw them go through it as well. And now I know after they have, we have all the results. Now they have to go train depending on the type of athlete. I may get them. So if someone comes to us and they have a prior injury or they're dealing with a lot of pain, 
they'll start with physical therapy to first get them out of pain. Uh, frequently, it'll be half and half. So maybe it's, you know, they'll spend the first half with Rushi and then the second half with our AT, Sean. Um, and then after they get out of pain and transition out of physical therapy, if um, they're, they, you know, they get out of pain now, it's like, all right, if we're training for performance, that's when I come in as a strength conditioning professional. So the my main role is working with primarily um, healthy athletes, trying to maximize performance, prevent injuries, kind of prevent them from getting to Rushi. Um, and then right. if someone does have pain or an injury, they go down, they see him, and then kind of come back to me either for therapeutic exercise or for performance training. Right. Well, and and that's what I that's what I imagine your your function. Obviously, you know it, it's a it's sort of a multi-step process, if you will. Is obviously if you've got people that have already got some some injury or some ailments, if you will, uh, physical ailments, uh, you want to address those right away. You want to um, you know heal them, if you will, or get them back into a, a better wellness. And then obviously, Paul, you want to step in at that point to help them further prevent that from happening again. Uh, or reduce the risk greatly, um, but also want them to, you know, through strength exercise and things like that, uh, get them he- healthy and active again so that they can get out there and enjoy whatever sport they're doing, but obviously in this case, uh, golf. Um, again, that's is that pretty much uh, on the button as well? Yeah, pretty much. And the thing, when it comes to injuries and pain, the area that a lot of people kind of go astray is they someone comes in with, you know, their, their knees bothering them. Uh, very often people will, you know, address the issue by like, all right, we're going to try to get the knee better. Let's focus on the knee. Let's focus on the knee. Um, when in reality, what our assessment process does and what we're so good at at the lab is figuring out what's the cause of that, that pain in the knee. We know that pain is not the problem. Pain is just a symptom of an existing problem. So it may be something farther up the kinetic chain that's causing that knee injury. So if we look and we say, okay, your knee's bothering you. Well, why is that happening? Well, maybe it's lack of core stability. Maybe it's lack of glute strength. It's something that isn't located around the knee at all, or not located around the knee at all. It's somewhere, somewhere completely different on the body. So our, the training that we do is going to, especially for the preventative type training, is we're kind of addressing the athlete as a whole, their entire body, how their entire body is functioning, make sure it's all functioning properly. And that's really what our, our assessment being so thorough allows us to do really, really well. Yeah, and 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 Rushi, just to go back to what you were talking about for a second, um, you know, obviously that that initial assessment is is critical, and uh, you know, I I've had uh, another guest recently that that is a chiropractor, and and she talked a little bit about um, she specialized in in the golf uh, industry, and you know, she talked mm-hmm. about obviously preventative maintenance and things like that, but obviously a key thing that you want to be able to uh, do is is get that. Um, potential athlete in, uh, you know, in your grasp, if you will, and find out what are some of the, the issues that they're um, dealing with or potentially could deal with based on, on their... Um, so tell me a little bit, uh, again, you, you talked about what you do um, physically, but how long does the, the, does the process take uh, for the assessment? Traditionally, um, typically, excuse me, how long does the uh, process take? And is this something that you recommend regardless, again, what sport, but, uh, again, we're talking about golf here tonight, is this something that you recommend that maybe they do these assessments on a somewhat of a regular basis, like maybe annually every year at the beginning of the season before they get out there and start swinging the club? Absolutely. That is uh, very highly recommended because 
when we uh, started putting this all program a few years back, uh, we did a lot of randomized trials on various schools and colleges. And uh, we just went there. We took the whole football team one time, uh, one of the college and the locally. It was, uh, and then we did the other athlete as well. We had at least uh, 80 athletes, if I remember correctly. And after doing the whole assessment, we just give them a report that at least uh, 40 of the 80 athletes were pretty high risk, not high, the moderate, but there were 20 of them were very high risk of injuring. Uh, we, we give them some body parts. Suppose one uh, athlete was high risk of injuring their ACL, one was the hip. And there was a preseason. Their season started, and I kid you not, within month time, I out of those 40 people, we put it in the moderate risk. We I saw in physical therapy practice at least 25 of those, and it's very wow. close to what we predicted that this is what you're gonna hurt if you don't take care of it. Um, a lot of soccer athletes, we saw baseball player, we saw football player, so that tells you that. Uh, doing the proper and in the PT world, that's what they say: the assessment is half of your treatment. Literally, you have to spend more time in assessment than treating any athlete or even the regular average person. Uh, more you know about the body and the mechanics, more you can predict it and prevent it at the same time. In there, again, you cannot prevent everything, but at least you can tell them that some areas of higher risk are. And then you can work towards it. So when you reassess them, then you see the difference that, okay, your muscles were not firing in your hip areas, which was affecting your golf pattern, and you were using your back more, so your back was hurting. And now all of a sudden I put the surface EMG, which is one of the tools we have it, and we see the muscle firing in the hip is improved, and all of a sudden the back pain goes away. So that tells that the... It's not uh, any kind of fake news. It is very fact science, and um, the data don't lie. Uh, visually, I can make anything up by assessing any patient or any athlete that, oh, you have this fault and that fault. But when we go right. through all the machine learning and uh, assessing it with very precise data and visual on top of it, then, then the combined results we get, that's pretty accurate. Uh, very much in predicting injuries as well as preventing. So um, saying that, it will be definitely a good idea for any athlete. We recommend them to pre-season, post-season, come and get it assessed. Our assessment process is almost two hours long. It's not quick 10, 15 minutes assessment. Uh, right. And they get the detailed report so they know exactly what they are missing in very layman term as well as if the pros wants to know, then we give detailed report about the medical term and jargons and biomechanical physics terms, so they know what they are looking at as well. Uh, it's definitely recommended to do every year, just like you go for cleaning and for your dentist and you go for your physical. Right. This is something is coming in the picture nowadays with all those people getting more into sports and other stuff. Uh, it's kind of your physical and it's combination of it's uh, your eyes, your <laughs> your body mechanics, your biomechanics, your injury risk and all that. So it should be actually uh, we had in our mind as a team that we should com uh, present this to more and more healthcare professional and the insurance company even down the road so they make it as a part of routine checkup. 
so they don't have to go through all the injury and all that. That's why they can save money down the road too. So that's for a long-term goal to put it for the insurance too. So that way it's covered just like the annual checkup and there's nothing to lose. You get the most binocular vision on your own body that what you're missing. Even if you're not athlete, there are a lot of things we do. We do the FMS and SFMA, which is the Selective Functional Movement Assessment. Um, and you don't have to be athlete. You can come in and just say, I don't have pain. I just, can you assess me if something is missing? Then I can still find something that, okay, the neck is stiff, and this is your job. There are chances that down the road, if you don't take care of it, you might end up hurting there or something, you know? So you can still predict it. If I, if I could jump in for one second here. Yeah, um, sure, Paul. Yep. In, term, in terms of the, the frequency of how how frequently we actually typically do assess people that come to us, it's pretty much like on a monthly basis. Um, I like in right. the, the athletic assessment that we have to, similar to that, like of a blood test. So if someone, you know, say someone's unhealthy, they go to, you get their checkup, they get a blood test, and it shows their, all their markers are really poor. So they they go on a diet to get healthy. Well, that blood test is just a snapshot in time. It's that one blood test that you took on that one day. Now you change your diet right. up and you start to feel better. Well, you don't know how much better you got unless you, you know, get another blood test because that one that you took a month ago isn't, isn't no longer accurate. We've made some changes. Now our diet is a little bit different. And then over time, in order to make sure that the dietary changes you're making are actually taking hold and working, you would continue to get tested over the course of time to track your progress. The same is true for training. We'll assess somebody when they come to us. So say a doctor comes to the lab, we do the global assessment. You say, okay, here are all the areas that we need to improve. Then we're going to train them. We're going to reassess them about a month later to be, okay, are we going in the right direction? Are there any other problems that we can address? Kind of that, that one assessment we had a month ago was a snapshot in time, but now your body isn't the same as it was a month ago because we've been moving, we've been training. So it's important to do it pretty regularly because – we're not going to be the same for, you know, six months at a time, especially for moving, especially right. during, the, during the golf season when you're going out and playing a lot. There's going to be a lot of potentially overuse type things that will accumulate over the season. So before and after a season would be great, but doing it more, even more frequently than that, assuming you're training and keeping up with the training would be beneficial. Right, and, and yeah, obviously, if you're, if, especially if you're um, a high competitor, again, whether it's golf or, or any um, you know, sport or activity, you obviously want to be assessed more often. Uh, that definitely is uh, makes a lot of sense. Paul, I want to ask you a, a couple of things um, based on something you just touched on and then just uh, sort of, uh, again, on that assessment. Um, now, obviously, you handle more of the, the strength and conditioning uh, function, if you will. Now, in addition to the, set, the, the assessment that uh, Rushi uh, does, do you also, in, in preparation for um, you know, setting up some sort of a program for that particular athlete. Do you do kind of your own assessment to find out what their physical uh, limitations might be and to make sure that you're not, you know, training somebody too much that maybe quite can't handle it? Or do you get enough information from the initial assessment to, to help formulate that, uh, you know, that session or group of sessions? Yeah, that's a great rather. question. Yeah. Um, so we get obviously a ton of data from the initial assessment so we can see the glaring, glaring areas of, all right, here's what we need to improve. Like you're saying, it's okay, so how okay. do we improve it? Because we don't know maybe, like, if we're going to, you know, do a squat with someone. Well, maybe it's not a barbell back squat. Maybe it's not a barbell front squat. Maybe it's a goblet squat that's going to work for that particular person. Uh, we can't test everything, like, everything in the world in two hours. That would just, you know, it's just not feasible. So um, 
right. really the, when, whenever we're training, every day is a, a mini assessment in and of itself. So, yeah, okay, we, okay, we have this goal, that we, this area that we need to address. All right, well, how are we going to do it? That's what we're going to break down this program. And then as we're training, we're going to figure out, okay, maybe this exercise isn't working for this person. We're going to have to modify to something else. Or as we see a move, maybe there's something that didn't show up in the assessment. Okay, now we have to target that area or modify it. So, yeah, it's a con- I mean, training is a constant assessment process. No, no exercise is perfect for everybody. Um, no, right. There's not one variation of an exercise that's going to be perfect for everybody. So while we find a lot of the areas that we're going to need to improve and, you know, say we find imbalances in the body, of course, as we go through training, we're going to have to assess periodically or constantly to make sure that what we're doing is going to be the best. Because if I know, okay, this person, this person really could use some unilateral leg exercises, so we're going to lunge with this person. And then when they're lunging, we realize, oh, there's, this person doesn't have the balance to do a walking lunge. Maybe that's not the right exercise. Maybe we're going to do a support and split squat instead for this person. Same, same effect, we're doing unilateral lower body exercises, but one variation was going to be unsafe, and the other one's going to be a lot more beneficial for this particular person. Right. And obviously there's a little bit of trial and error, like you said. I mean, you've got to, I mean, you're going to start with, um, you know, certain exercise that you feel fit the mold, if you will, for that particular individual. But there might be some modification as you go along based on their abilities and, and based on uh, some of the challenges that, that you may be faced with. Um, Paul, I want to also ask you very quickly, and then, and then we're going to move on, but because um, you touched on a little bit about nutrition. Do you work with, do you, or do you have somebody on board in, in, the, uh, in the lab that um, handles nutrition side or, or that sort of advice? Or do you work with somebody outside of the, your group that, um, that can assist? And in, in, in obviously, because nutrition is a big factor as well to be athletic. You, know, you can't just be eating chili dogs and drinking beer around the golf course. You've got to have uh, you know, some good nutrition as well if you want to be athletic. So um, do you guys have somebody in-house that you work with? Or do you have somebody outside that you refer people to? Yeah. Um, so in-house, there's two people primarily that really do a lot of the nutrition stuff. Number one is our owner, Dr. Piazza. Um, he has his own nutrition okay. reform, so that's more for um, it's less for athletes just looking for you know ideal nutrition practices, and more for uh, people who are you know the reform, so people who need um, you know lifestyle changes right. to really help lose a lot of body weight and kind of become healthier overall. That's more of who he works with, and then another one of our strength conditioning coaches, Jeffrey Duarte, he's our uh, sports nutritionist on staff. So he's not a registered dietitian or anything, but he can give recommendations of good habits, good practices, right. but he's not writing like meal plans or anything for anybody. We don't have no. anyone, on, you know, he'll give information of tips, different habits that you should um, be employing, kind of make recommendations. But um, yeah, that's the, that's the extent of the nutrition that we do is more of just some general guidelines and some, some tips to help, help optimize how, what you're eating and when you're eating it. Right. And, and obviously if they want to, you know, um, you know, get further information on that, they can certainly, you know, uh, reach out to, to somebody that uh, either, uh, you know, a nutritionist or, or their own doctor or something like that. But, uh, I was just curious because you had mentioned about that, and I was just wondering if you guys sort of have mm-hmm. somebody on board. And obviously you, you can give some general information, but again, if they want to um, pursue a little bit further, they can, they can uh, get other avenues as well. All right, guys. Well, I want to move on to, obviously, I know one of the reasons that you guys are here tonight. You're very excited. Um, NY Sports Science Lab is uh, sort of teamed and partnered up with Zone Sports Academy. Um, Rushi, I'm going to start with you, and then, and then Paul, by all means, uh, join in as well. Tell us a little bit about this uh, new venture. 
Actually, Paul works at the Zone Academy, so I think he'll be the right person to answer that. Okay. Uh, All right. So he goes there too. All right, Paul. Well, let's... Yeah, so Zone is one of our first satellite locations. It's a existing baseball facility located in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Uh, we saw they did awesome work over there, and it was an opportunity for us to get out to reach more athletes. Uh, we're doing group training there. For the most part, it, we're working with predominantly baseball, softball athletes for now, um, hopefully expanding right. different different sports in the future. But uh, the setting's a little bit different since at the lab, everyone that we train is one-on-one. Um, there's one of our one of our limitations to the sports science lab is our space constraints. So everyone, which is great for the athlete because you're getting one-on-one training, but for us, that limits the number of people we can reach. At zone, there's a lot more space. It's, you know, big turf, batting cages. Um, so we have more space and we can handle more athletes at once. So the training we're, we're doing over there is group training for both, you know, our performance, physical performance training, but also the brain training stuff that we do as well. So uh, we're, you know, we're getting through month three over there right now. So it's been really, it's been new. It's been exciting. It's been fun. Uh, it's a little different setting. And for me, I come from a predominantly baseball background. So I'm kind of in my glory over there right now. Right. <laughs> well said. Um, and, and I like the fact that, um, you know, that you're, you're delving into, to, you know, other areas and things like that as well. And I liked uh, also the fact that it's not just about the physical side, but you're doing brain training. T- tell me a little bit about that. I know that that's not necessarily your um, area of, of special, uh, specialty, if you will, but talk about some of the things. And, and so just people get an idea of what you're talking about when you're saying brain training. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, uh, there are a couple different technologies that we use at the lab um, that will train different sensory motor areas predominantly. Um, and, and as we go through that, we try to hit on the mental game as, as best we can, depending on the sports that we're, we're doing. It'll look a little bit differently for each individual. Um, so, for example, at, at Zone, Matt Diorio is another one of the uh, performance experts who's there with me, uh, and he's running the brain training program. So he has our synoptic sensory motor station, our synoptic strobe goggles, uh, our fit lights and some of the other technologies that we have. And he can help the athletes train things like eye-hand coordination, decision-making, reaction time um, in a setting that's a little bit different than playing their sport. So we can kind of get them out of their comfort zone, challenge them in ways. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to describe without actually, you know, seeing it in person. Right. Um, but it's depending on the athlete's needs for their sport. So we'll take golf for an example. Uh, the biggest thing that we want in golf is being able to repeat our swing, right? So to have, you know, this, if right. we know what our swing is supposed to be, we want to be able to do it over and over again because any small deviation is going to yield, you know, very large differences in outcomes. So we, in that case, we would use things like our interactive metronome and possibly our strobe goggles. So the interactive metronome is something we can use to improve our rhythm and timing in our strobe goggles or something we can use to help improve things like proprioception. Uh, so we could integrate those technologies into the training program to make it so that our internal rhythm and timing is better so that as we go through our swing, we kind of have a better feel for it and improve our proprioception with the, the goggles that we have basically a better feel of what we're doing. Um, that's a pretty simple explanation of what it is. It's, it's really fun when we have people try it out for the first time and they can get their hands on the equipment and say, oh, okay, I see what this does and accompany it with an explanation and show them, like, okay, here's really the the second level benefit that we can get in, in addition to things like eye-hand coordination or rhythm or decision-making, we can really talk about your, our mentality as we're going through it. If 
we're going we're gonna to challenge you, so hopefully there's going to be some failure in there. How are we dealing with failure? We bounce back quickly. Is it, are we, is it taking us out of it for a long time? Um, not that we're right. sports psychologists or anything, but we're trying to basically kind of bridge the gap, so to speak, where we can focus, okay, here's how we're going to improve our hand coordination, but here's how we're going to improve our approach to a competitive and, uh, competitive and challenging event. Well, and you, you raise a very interesting, uh, well said, you, you raise a very interesting point as well, Paul, too, you know, that, that again, regardless of what sport we're talking about, but, you know, obviously here in golf, uh, it's not just a physical part of the game. You know, a lot of people make mistakes, you know, when they come to see their, their local professional and they're, you know, always focused on, you know, hitting the ball, uh, you know, perfect and hitting it straight and, and uh, you know, long and far and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they're not really learning and understanding how to play. And that's where the mental side of the game, I mean, if you listen to some of the greats of the game, like Jack Nicholas, you know, really 90% of it is a mental game. And if you're not, you know, sort of training that aspect or training that part of your body uh, and you're just, you know, constantly working on hitting balls on the driving range, um, you know, you might be a great, you become a great ball striker, but you're not necessarily going to be a great uh, player or, or golf uh, player, if you will, um, at that particular time because you're spending so much time on the physical part of your game. So obviously this is something that you guys have recognized and that's why, uh, and again, you're offering it to a, a multitude of sports, but this is why you're really focusing on that in your in your training is not just the physical side, but also the mental side, correct? 100%. And, and thinking about it this way, when you're golfing, how long would you be out on the course for, you know, three, four hours or so if you're playing 18? Right. Um, and then yeah. what length of time were you spending actually physically swinging a golf club? Probably a total of maybe like a minute, two minutes, three minutes maybe. If you think like right. your swing takes about, you know, one to two seconds and you're shooting maybe 190 to 100 shots in a day, you're looking at a minute and a half roughly of actual physical time that you're spending. So you have, you know, three hours, 58 minutes and 30 seconds where you're not actually striking the ball. There's a lot that can go right. wrong in our brain over the course of that time if we're not prepared for it. So, yeah, 100%. It's, when you start to think about the amount of time that you spend not hitting a ball versus hitting a ball, it really puts into perspective that yep. this is an area that obviously we need to be able to strike a ball. If you can't strike a ball, you can't play golf. But this is another – it's a huge piece of it of can I stay focused? Can I stay positive? Am I getting down? Is one shot leading into the next? These are things that, like you're saying, just because you're a good ball striker doesn't make you a good golfer. Right, and we've seen that. Yeah, we've seen that multiple times throughout a variety of tours, whether it be the men's or the women's tour, uh, where somebody's just not playing their best physically, um, but they still shoot a great round, or they actually even end up winning. In fact, we had a young lady from the Symmetra Tour that was on, uh, I think it was just this past Tuesday, uh, on my other uh, broadcast, and you know she talked about how, um, you know, last season she had uh, multiple rounds where she just wasn't hitting it that well. Uh, but she ultimately still did well in many of the tournaments because mentally, uh, you know, she was very focused. Um, so obviously, you know, it, it's sort of a balancing act. And, and again, you know, some of the, the best players in the world uh, weren't necessarily the best ball strikers. They were just uh, great at thinking of themselves around the golf course. And you raise a very a, a good point, Paul, is, you know, literally over the, the, the average round of a, a golf game, you might be uh, actually hitting the golf ball a total of a couple of minutes. Um, whereas you're walking around or, or even taking a cart uh, for three and a half, four hours, uh, that's a lot of time on your, on your hands, and it's not always easy if, if you're 
you know, played a, a couple of bad holes and uh, now you've got the rest of the round to complete and uh, you're kind of in a funk. So even though you're hitting the ball well, you're still not maybe necessarily playing well. So uh, I, I like the fact that you guys are covering a, a broad spectrum of things uh, at uh, at your uh, company there. Um, Rushi, yeah. I want to come back to you. Uh, yeah, I want to come back to you a little bit uh, on this. Um, now, obviously, you guys have been, been doing this for a little while and, and you're expanding and, and, and doing things. I, I know from, because I've been on your website a few times, uh, you know, since I've had you on before and that, and and obviously I know primarily you are doing a lot of work with with some uh, younger athletes and, and professional athletes and things like that. But you're also making this available uh, to some older folks as well that maybe still want to get out there and play. Um, what would you say? You know, because obviously there's we got our baby boomers out there that are you know getting close to retirement age here and and they want to go out and play golf and 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 do other activities and that. Uh, obviously you've got the assessment assessments and that, but what about people that have maybe been sort of nursing an injury for, for a long, long time? What's the best thing for them? What should they be doing now um, in, in order to rectify that? Uh, see, the, the chances of injury, obviously, if your body is not in optimum shape or if your flexibility is not good or endurance is not good or vision changes with age too, so the chances of injury gets... Uh, higher uh in golf right. usually seven to 17 years old and greater than 55 years old sustain more golf injury than middle age 18 to 54 so it is significantly higher risk of hurting yourself in golf at 55 and up which is kind of if you see it's common age to a lot of people once they go to the retirement age and they have a lot of time in there that's where they start picking the golf club and start going out so uh for you to perform well and prevent any injury, your your body, your mind, your eyes, everything, and your, of course, uh, your diet, everything has to be in the optimum shape. Uh, the very common area of uh, injuries in immature golfers is the lower back, and in um, mature, and like pros, is more like a wrist, is common area. So, uh, what we actually, even though you are average Joe, uh, you just started golf, 75, 60 years of age, and you're just coming in for assessment, uh, we want to put a lot of emphasis on um, their uh, body composition, their their weight, uh, if they have any kind of uh, physical issues, like arthritis is most common things that set up on people above 50 um, so there are a lot of variation you can do in the golf to change the mangoes. So a lot of time I recommend people having the knee replaced uh, for the older population or having bad knee arthritis and they cannot hold their stance in proper weight, then I tell them to change some of the angles. So you keep still your knee flexed uh, while doing the swing so your uh, center of gravity is lower so it gives you more stability part but at the same time if that is bothering then sometimes we suggest them using proper orthotics or using the knee brace or changing the angle of the foot it might change some of the trajectory of where the ball is going but then you get used to changing your whole style uh, to prevent further injuring your knee uh, again, most common is the hip injuries as well. So a lot of people I see here, uh, the golfer, and they have a lot of hip stiffness. And right. having lack of rotation in the hip, 
is not only going to affect how far the ball is going to go, but also they're going to put them at higher risk of hurting their back and the knees, also the foot. Just because there is not enough rotation in the hip, they're going to throw the other joint off and just uh, close the biomechanical chain. So in that cases, I tell them to keep their feet pointing forward a bit instead of keeping it parallel to each other while you're hitting it. So that kind of reduces the amount of tension and that also gives them more uh, arc of motion in the hip joint. So there, some of the uh, golf swing might change, but at the same time, they will save their other body parts. So, right. Uh, giving them a right. So assessment, again, is the cue of everything because more I know about them, what medical history they had or uh, how good they are in shape or if they have any issue with the vision. Sometimes one of the golfer I just suggested to start wearing glasses, get your eye exam because he was not able to see on the screen where we're doing the visual eye-hand coordination and that perception assessment. He was going all over right. the screen. So we knew that he's not going to be able to play golf regardless how much strong he is or how flexible he is if his eyes is not working well. I mean, um, the vision is not good. So uh, assessing them and finding them the solution is the key for older age population golfer. And uh, injury prevention is number one thing we uh, emphasize right. on uh, this population. Just yeah. because they're their body is more fragile at that age. And again, regardless, you can be in best shape ever, but the body is going to do, biology is going to do its work. Uh, there are certain things right. that certain it's going to happen. Right, yeah. I, I I actually just hit the 55 mark here a couple of weeks ago, so I know exactly exactly what you're talking about, Rushi. Um, yeah, I'm in the, unfortunately, I'm in the, on the upside of that category now, so um, it is what it is. Um you know, Paul, let me just ask you this and, and, you know, as we get close to wrapping up our time, um, you know, obviously you, you want to best prepare somebody for the season coming out now. So, um, maybe just to give us a short idea, they've come in, they've taken the assessment you've done. What, what I typically, and obviously I, I, everybody's different, but what typically, um, when it comes to the golfers, and again, you can pick whatever age group you want, um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the season, do you try to get them to, to do in order to prepare for a new season? Um, so, I mean, yeah, this will be a pretty general answer because obviously it'll it'll change sure. depending on the person. Um, but right. some of the, the fundamental things that we'll see in golf will be, one, our um, core musculature. So can we stabilize the core? Can be strong through anti-rotation, so like resisting rotation, and uh, can we rotate really aggressively? So, one having the requisite strength to allow full rotation, but also to you know teach what that actually means. So how our hips are supposed to be functioning relative to our shoulders, um, and being able to do that not only you know correctly but safely, and then hopefully optimally at really high speed. Um, in addition to that, it's going to be a lot of you know general strength. So we want to make sure, you know, we have a strong glutes, strong uh, strong muscles around the hips, so making sure that our ab and adductors are, are both strong. So, like, the um, thing, I call it just the side butt and the inner thigh. Um, those muscles are going to be really important for transferring force through, uh, through rotation. And then a lot of, you know, upper back mobility, so, like, being able to thoracically rotate and uh, strength through the shoulders. So, I mean, there's going to be general fitness like any sport. I mean, 
everyone's going to be going through a lot of, you know, simple strength of being able to have, you know, their general fitness up and general movement capacity. But for golf, one of our main focuses will definitely be on, you know, rotating and resisting rotation as well. Yeah, and also something, too, that I, I think a lot of people don't realize, um, and, and and I say this, you know, from the golf professional side, um, you know, as we age and, and get older, even though, you know, we can still keep pretty strong, um, Rushi, as you mentioned, you know, biologically our, our bodies are changing. One of the things that I think that a lot of people don't realize um, when it comes to the equipment, uh, and I'm talking about the golf equipment, that the irons that you might have swung when you were 20 – um, you don't need necessarily to be swinging when you're, you know, 55 or even 60 years old because the shafts tend to be a little bit firmer or stiffer. Uh, they tend to be a little bit heavier. Um, so sometimes an equipment change and through the information, I know you don't get involved in that specific side of it, guys, but um, the information that you're giving them can greatly help the golf coach or teach professional say, hey, look, maybe we need to look at, you know, updating your equipment to match your physical abilities now as well. And that would be something that they could uh, get from the information you're providing, correct? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. We we work a lot, with, especially with um, people who come to us like just for an assessment too. We'll you know, usually be right. relaying that information to either another strength and conditioning coach or in this case it would be a golf coach just that you have all the information as well. As long as the athlete's okay with sharing it, it's not like we're hoarding it to, uh, to ourselves. Sure. If an athlete, hey, right. I want to assess and I want my coach to know all this information, and then he can make any adjustments based on what we find, percent, we'll absolutely send that over. Yeah, and see, that's that's very valuable information to have for a lot of golfers, again, regardless of age. Um, you know, if they're working with a coach or a teach professional, that's valuable information for the, for the teach professional to have because, again, there's key information that they're going to derive from that, and it can also explain – um, you know, a lot of times if they've been taking lessons for, you know, let's say for the, you know, the last year or so, and there's been issues and things that that individual, that teacher professional, is not trained or qualified. In most cases, obviously, there are some situations where there's a crossover, but they're not trained in what you guys are trained in to, to do. They're there to show them how to, uh, you know, handle the fundamentals and the mechanics of the golf swing, but they're not there to handle the the physical side as far as uh, conditioning and strength training and things like that. So. This is where these assessments and, and working together as a team really can can help the uh, the athlete get the, the most out of their uh, their golf game or, or again whatever sport they may be involved with. So, um, well, guys, it, it's been a very interesting. Uh, any any final thoughts or any comments that either one of you want to make? And then, uh, Rushi, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity if you want to direct uh, the listeners uh, or Paul, whichever, um, where they can go to get more information about uh, what you guys have to offer. Uh, any final thoughts, either one? Absolutely. Paul, you want to go? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we pretty much covered, ran the gamut. Um, I think what you were saying at the end was was perfect of, you know, the synergy between what we do and what the sport coaches do. So in this case, the golf professional, where you're given lessons, um, it's it's really we we try to provide at the lab everything that an athlete will need outside of their actual sport specific training. So they're not going to be coming in and hitting golf balls and working on their chip, working on their short game with us. We'll try to do everything else that can prepare their body to best handle the demands right. of golf in this case, or any for any athlete in any sport. Uh, we're not teaching some alignment how to block, but we're we'll we'll get him strong, give him the requisite abilities for his body to be able to implement that properly in practice. So um, we love when we can communicate with the actual sport coaches because it only enhances the athlete's experience. 
Uh, this way we know maybe right. if you say, you know, an athlete comes from and a golf coach says, hey, this is where we're really struggling in their swing, that's even more information that we can, you know, kind of target the assessment and really look at as we're, as we're going through the training with somebody. So 100%, I totally agree with what you're saying there. Well, and also, too, just one final comment I want to make about that. The other thing, too, that it does uh, is you guys are able to develop a program, uh, again, based on the assessment and based on the individual's needs. But the sport, I mean, obviously, you're going to train differently if you want to become a good golfer as opposed to, you know, playing baseball or football. Now, obviously, there are certain elements in baseball and, and or hockey or, or whatever that, that follow suit, you know, transitioning weight and things like that. But um, obviously, the strength and conditioning training that you know a, a baseball or football uh, athlete may have is going to be different again uh, from maybe what a golfer is going to do because they're using maybe different mus- muscles um, traditionally. Right. Uh, but also, right, and and that's something too that I mm-hmm. think that uh, you know having those assessments and that can really help shed some light for for the coaches as well. Um, all right, guys. Well, again, I want to thank both of you for, for joining me tonight. It's been very interesting, and I'll give you Absolutely. either one, again, whoever wants to, uh, a moment to uh, just share how uh, the folks can, if they want to reach out uh, and get more information, but also if they're interested in maybe uh, both the the athlete and even the coaches out there, if they want to get in touch with you uh, to see what they can, Absolutely. you know, you guys can put together. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah, so uh, we are running this program for all the sports and a very individualized program is nothing generalized. Uh, we have uh, our staff is specialized in various things. So our Paul is excellent in uh, baseball. We have guy excellent in soccer. I have a cricket and volleyball background. I have guys specialized in golfing, and I'm also specialized in that. So. We cover more or less with our staffing, uh, whatever the needs are, and uh, our assessment is very thorough and detailed, and it breaks down from macro to micro perspective. That will not you will not miss anything uh, in terms of uh, any kind of uh, linkage uh, which could potentially improve your game or uh, make you higher injury risk uh, type person. So. Uh, more and more you know about your own body, it'll help you to find what exactly you are and uh, what you can prevent and apply in your routine life, whether you're pro or you are athlete or you are even non-athlete. It'll help you in any way. So um, you can check out the website and you can also follow us on Instagram, which you can exactly see what we are doing and how we are working. We have very good uh, resources and information. A bunch of videos are there. All the program where we are running and uh, uh, methodology and the machineries we use, everything is there on Instagram, Facebook, as well as on our website. So you can check that out. It's uh, it, The website is called www.nysportsciencelab.com. Dot com and uh, you can just Google New York Sports Science Lab and you will see it there. Uh, also follow us on Instagram. You'll get tons of video information. You exactly know how we are working and how the things are taken care of here. Yeah, our Instagram handle well, it's, is it's, at NY Sports Science Lab, and Twitter we're at NY underscore SSL. Perfect. Well, guys, again, I want to thank both of you for joining me this evening. It's been an interesting and enlightening discussion. And, you know, I always try to, with my program, always try to have guests on that 
that um, you know it, it's great to talk about the golf swing and talk about how we can fix the slice and the hook and all those wonderful things, but there's other parts uh, of the puzzle as well that that go hand in hand, and so it's been very interesting discussion. And congratulations on uh, you know transitioning into def- different areas and uh, expanding and and helping uh, all of those athletes out there you know become better and, and get more enjoyment out of whatever sport they are involved with. So uh, keep up Thank the great work much. and loved having you. Yeah, loved having you guys on, and you're welcome to come back anytime you have uh, more things to share with us. Uh, we can continue on the conversation. But uh, Paul and Rushi, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. Thank you very much for your time. Hopefully, thank you. all the listeners enjoyed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. All right. All Appreciate right. it, guys. Yeah. Have a great evening. All right. Thank take care. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. That was my uh, special guest, Dr. Rushi Shalawala and Paul Searles, uh, both from the NY Sports Science Lab. And again, you can go to nysportsciencelab.com is their principal website, and you can get in touch uh, with them there, uh, the various uh, different um, members of their staff, and also uh, all of their social media links there as well, particularly their Instagram uh, account as well. You want to follow uh, them there and, and see uh, some great videos and, and get a better visual, of course. Uh, obviously, we can't do that here on, on this program because it's audio, but uh, give you a better idea of, of uh, some of the things that they offer at their program. And again, uh, I want to thank uh, Clint Wright, Chuck Evans, and Dr. Allison Kurt for joining me earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. Had a great discussion tonight. Um, for those of you just tuning in uh, towards the end of the broadcast, uh, if you go uh, to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live, uh, in a few moments, the on-demand uh, section, the uh, recorded version will be available. So if you missed uh, most of tonight's broadcast and you're tuning in late, if you go there and uh, if you hang on tight, uh, I'm going to be uh, doing the closing credits here in just a minute, and uh, you can find out some other great ways that you can tune in as well. On that note, I will see you next Tuesday on the Women of Golf show, my other broadcast from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network with my good friend and co-host, LPJ professional Cindy Miller. So hope you join me this Tuesday, and then I'll be followed next Thursday with another great uh, Coach's Corner panel and another great interview guest here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody, and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts. Or listen on any of the following social media platforms. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.